Welcome to Sound Tradition, where we examine the theology, practices, and traditions of the contemporary church in light of the Bible. My name is Jason Shirk, and Luke Hitz is actually not with us this week. He has been out sick for the past couple weeks, and actually the next couple weeks he will be going on vacation as well. So I will be soloing the podcast for the next couple weeks, but I didn't want to leave you guys without any content from us while he is gone. And so I've decided to kind of pick up some issues that are related to the topic we've been discussing, but I didn't want to push too much ahead without Luke because I'd like to get his, his mind on some of these topics. Today we are going to be tackling the topic of non-essentials versus essentials. Now when we hear that phrase, essentials versus non-essentials, a lot of times there is a lot of pushback when that, that phraseology is used, okay? And I think a lot of that pushback comes from the fact that we define the terms differently, and then it also comes down to what we would classify as essential versus non-essential truth. There's a lot of differences on where to draw that line. And, but honestly, when, when you dig down into it, I think almost everybody would acknowledge that there is a different weight to certain doctrinal truths. Okay? Obviously, doctrinal truths that refer to salvation and the resurrection of Christ, the deity of Christ, basically what we would call the fundamentals, have a higher weight than certain other doctrines like who can take communion at my church or do I baptize somebody three times or one time. And so we have this difference of certain doctrines are heavierly, more heavily weighted than other doctrinal truths. But a lot of times this disagreement, again, it comes down because of a different understanding of what the terms mean. Most of the time when people hear essential versus non-essential truths, the immediate thought that comes to their mind is that somebody is making a statement about whether a certain truth is important or not. And honestly, I don't think there are very many Christians on the face of the earth who would, who would state that any part of the Bible is not important. I think we all acknowledge that God has given us his word complete and that it is, it is all given to us. It is all special. It is all valuable. In fact, the Old Testament says that God has exalted his word above his name. Okay. So God's word is valuable. And we have it to reinforce this in 2 Timothy 3.16, the Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. God's word, all of God's word, all scripture is profitable. It is beneficial to our lives. And we'll talk about that a little bit later as, as we go along. Now, as this topic relates to our study of fundamentalism, the terms non-essential and essential truths took on a different understanding than even whether it was important or not important in early fundamentalism, because fundamentalism arose out of the dispensational premillennialist movement of the late 1800s. And this group of pastors, they wanted to have a massive impact on the society around them. And so they were trying to determine what were the bare minimum doctrinal positions that a person had to believe to be considered 
a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were, they were fighting at that time against modernism and higher criticism and liberalism within the church. And liberalism specifically denied the deity of Jesus Christ and the supernatural throughout the Bible. And so, they, they wanted to have this, this front to fight against the influx of modernism into the church And the best way to do that was to get as many people who were in agreement on the fundamentals, on the supernatural in the Bible, on the deity of Christ, on the inerrancy of God's word, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection. They got as many people as who were agreed on these doctrinal topics to join together in their fight against modernism. But that is how fundamentalism began. It was more ecumenical than fundamentalism has become today. Over the years, fundamentalism became more and more separatist over time. Because what you had were these early fundamentalists, they were still in their major denominations, a lot of them. Okay, But they were fighting the influx of modernism into their denominations. After a certain period, they came to the conviction that they had to separate from their denominations because there was no winning back the denomination. There was no kicking the liberalism out. Liberalism has basically won in most cases. Okay, And so they separated instead of continuing to, to fight within their denominations. And that attitude of separatism is an essential part of what fundamentalism is and has become because as we will study later on in the podcast, we're going to go over what the Bible teaches about the Christian's response to issues like these. Are we to separate or are we to find unity no matter what? And that, those, those are the two concepts that re- really at flux here. You have unity and you have separation. Okay? And honestly, the Bible teaches both of these doctrines. So there has to be some kind of an understanding in which both of these statements are true. <clears throat> so hi- historical fundamentalism boiled everything down to those fundamentals of the faith. These are the things that make us Christian. So when they use the terms essential versus non-essential truth in the early fundamentals, they were referring to truths that have to be present if a person is truly a born-again believer, okay? So, you can't, ha- you can't be without these doctrinal truths and be saved, is basically what they are trying to state, okay? Now, as we see throughout the rest of Scripture, now, you really, you have two pendulum swings that, that occurred within fundamentalism. Early fundamentalism, they found unity in just five or so doctrines, and they ignored everything else. Later fundamentalism, it came to the point where fundamentalists were separating over every distinctive issue that ever came up to where they could never work with another fundamentalist because they never agreed. And I think, I think that honestly, when it comes down to it, every Christian would acknowledge that you will never be in a hundred percent agreement with every other Christian that you meet. It's just not going to happen. There's going to be disagreements. So the real issue comes into play in when we decide where are we going to draw those lines. At what point are we going to decide, I have to separate versus I'm going to ignore this to 
to have fellowship with my brother in Christ. And that tension has to be there. Otherwise, you'll end up like some, some Christians who end up having their own house church because they can't get along with any other church out there because they're their own sole authority. Nobody else could ever be right. They, they're always the right one. They're, they're, they're the only one who is correct out there. Everybody else is wrong. And so therefore they split off from everybody else, every other Christian, every other church, because they're the only ones who have received the truth. Okay. And so that, those are the two opposite pendulum swings here, having unity for the sake of unity or separating because everybody has to agree with me. So somewhere in between those two extremes is the truth, is how we should live our lives. And that, that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. Um, as a preacher, we know that the Bible tells young preachers, specifically Timothy, Paul spoke to Timothy, and he challenged Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 verse 2 to preach the word. He was to preach God's word, all of it, okay? And then in Acts 20, verse 27, Paul says that he didn't shrink back from proclaiming the whole counsel of God. Now, you could debate what is the whole counsel of God in that passage. Honestly, it does have a contextual meaning, which is a little bit narrower than most people would take it. But the concept is this, that God was, or that Paul was not afraid to preach all of God's word that we are commanded as preachers to preach God's word. And, uh, and as we saw in 2 Timothy 3.16, all of it is profitable. None of it is unimportant to our lives. And so I think as, as a Christian, I should not take the position that I'm not going to teach or I'm not going to preach on a certain topic because it might offend somebody or it might make it so that I can't get along with somebody. That is not the point. That is not the focus that is supposed to be there. I am to teach and I am to preach God's word. Now, will there be disagreements? Yes, there will be disagreements. How we handle those disagreements is really what's at stake here. Are we going to divide with everybody we have a disagreement with? Or are we going to discuss talk through and deal with these issues are we going and are we still going to be able to fellowship and work alongside people that we have disagreements with historically we've had this catchphrase that a lot of churches have used in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and in all things charity that was attributed to augustine but the actual first writing was by a 17th century reformer but the concept there, again, is that if it's an essential truth, we are going to have unity. If it's a non-essential truth, we're going to have liberty. We're going to allow disagreement. But in everything, I am obligated to act in charity towards every believer that I know, every Christian that I know. I have rephrased this statement to reflect what I understand these concepts to really be. I have, I've rephrased it in plain things, unity, in doubtful questions, liberty, but in all things, charity, okay? And the reason I've, I've rephrased it that way is there are certain doctrinal truths that are clear. They're, they're laid out in scripture, they're obvious, um, and we should take a stand for those doctrinal truths. We should not back down, we should not fail to teach those things. But then there, there are other things that are doubtful questions, questions that we might have that could upset other Christians, you know, and <laughs> cause, cause issues. 
one of the early issues that you saw in the early church was this topic of whether I can eat meat or if I'm supposed to have eat only vegetables or do I eat or do I celebrate certain Sabbath days and new moons and all these things. And Paul concluded that every man was to be convinced in his own mind in those areas. So there, those are situations in which there are doubtful, doubtful discussions, doubtful issues. We could have a discussion about these things. We, if I choose to be a vegetarian, and in the, in the passage in Romans, these people were doing it for spiritual reasons. If I choose because of some spiritual reason to become a vegetarian, we should be able to have that discussion. But Paul says that we are not to receive them to doubtful disputations and that we are to be convinced in our own mind what the Lord wants us to do. So that's, that's clearly the presentation here, that we have some things that are doubtful, that are debatable, they aren't clearly spelled out in Scripture, and then we have other areas that are clearly stated in Scripture. And I should take a stand for what the Bible, Bible clearly states and what it, what it shows forth. Now, I wanted to take a look at some of the doctrinal principles of separation as found throughout the Bible. In the first principle of separation, it, to determine whether I should separate from another believer, would be found in Matthew chapter number 18. Okay, Matthew chapter number 18. And this is the chapter we're, we're pretty familiar with it generally, I think, where Jesus is dealing with the topic of church discipline. Okay. Now, in, in, this, in this idea here, you have a believer who has sinned against another believer. Jesus tells believer B to go to believer A and confront him. If he doesn't repent, then he's to take a witness. And then if he still doesn't repent, they bring it before the church. And the, from that point, basically, he is cast out of the church. He is separated from the church. So, what is the principle here? The principle here is that I am to separate from a persistently sinning brother who has refused to repent of his sin when confronted. Okay? And we have a whole lot of other passages that deal with church discipline, Galatians 6 being one of them. And so I challenge you to study that out in more detail. But just realize here that the principle is that we are to separate from a persistently sinning brother. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11 is our next passage. Let me pull that up real quick. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11 says, But now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Okay, This is related tightly to the last statement that we just talked about, the principle of separation from a persistently sinning brother. In this case, this is a man who has committed gross immorality. We are to separate from someone who has committed gross immorality. And Paul's argument here is that, yeah, there are people who commit fornication in the world. What, what good is it for me to judge them? I am to judge the people within my church that I am dealing with. Those are the ones who are important. And so if there is a fornicator or covetous person or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner in my church, 
I need to deal with that. I need to put them away from among yourselves is what Paul says in this passage. Okay. So we have the persistently sinning brother. We have the immoral brother in second Corinthians six verse 14 is our next passage. Second Corinthians six, 14. Which oftentimes when I hear this passage, it's almost always in the context of marriage, okay? <laughs> which, uh, which actually, it's an application of the passage, but it isn't the direct intended meaning of the passage. It says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath, Christ, hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters." saith the Lord. So here Paul was teaching the concept of separation from the world, okay? Now from, and it's not just from the world, it's from the unbelievers, okay? And this is applicable specifically to the situation in early fundamentalism. What were the people who they were separating from? They were the modernists, the liberals, and the liberals denied the deity of Jesus Christ. They were not believers, okay? So, the early fundamentalist movement was separating from unbelieving, professing Christians. They were not, they were not going to join together into a union with these infidels, with these, un, these unsaved people, okay? It says here, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers here. And so, the idea is... Um, back in old days, you had a yoke that would harness two oxen together to pull a plow. Now, if you take a really strong ox and you take a weakling donkey and put them together in the same yoke together, there's probably going to be a little bit of a struggle as they try to work together, right? Because they're unequally yoked together. And it's that concept with a saved person and an unsaved person. How can we yoke together with unsaved people to accomplish Christ's work when we can't even agree on the number one thing that that is important in our lives, and that is Jesus Christ? We can't even agree on salvation, you know, and it says here, what concord hath Christ with Belial? And that, that word concord is from our idea of a symphony. You get instruments playing together in a symphony. They're all meshing together to make this beautiful sound. But you get some punk rocker up there in the middle of a big classical concert jamming out over on the side that's going to sound a little bit off, maybe not a little bit, a lot off, okay? Because they don't have the same focus, the same goal. They're not on the same page. They're not going the same direction. And it's that idea with a believer and an unbeliever, we cannot be yoked together because we don't have the same priorities in life, okay? And this is, this is how it applies to marriage as well. We've often used this verse to teach that a saved person shouldn't marry an unsaved person. Now, if you are currently married to an unsaved person, 
Obviously, it's not God's will for you to divorce that person, and we could reinforce that from other passages of Scripture. But if you have a choice on who you are going to marry now, God says that you should not be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. And honestly, I think this goes to, to the same extent with business partners. You know, I can have a business and do business with people who are unsaved. I can even have people who work together with me who are unsaved. But it's going to be a struggle if we are in business together as partners and we're not on the same page. We're unequally yoked together. So we have separation from a persistently sinning brother, separation from the immoral brother, separation from the lost. We also have in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul teaches about separating from the lazy brothers, how I'm going to word this in this passage. Second, Second Thessalonians chapter number three. And so in, in Thessalonians, you had this idea, the Thessalonian believers were expecting the return of the Lord. Okay. And some had stopped working because of their expectation. They, they figured Christ is going to come. I don't need to work. I'll just eat all this food that the church is providing for me. And Paul says in verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians 3, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly, not after the tradition which he received of us. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behaved ourselves behaved not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example or an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Okay. And so they were told to withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. And Paul defines walking disorderly is specifically in this context as the brother who will not work. He will, he, and it ends will not, he's making a willful choice. I'm not going to work. Now I think it has a broader application to the Christian church because of the phrase that follows after that walketh disorderly. The next phrase says, and not after the tradition which he received of us. Well, what is the tradition? It's the words of God that were passed down to us. Tradition literally means something that is passed down, that is handed down. And the tradition, the, the beliefs, the, the oral teaching of the apostles exists in God's word. And so here you have an, the idea that we're to withdraw ourselves from the brother who is not walking according to the teachings of the word of God. Now, in some cases, this might be seem to be a little bit subjective because everybody has their own opinions on what I am what I'm expected to do. And we have we have controversial topics such as dress standards and music and things like topics like that. And I'm not going to endeavor in this podcast to tell you how you should think and where you should draw the line on those issues. But when God's word speaks about how a believer is supposed to live, we should take that seriously. 
And honestly, if, if we notice a brother is living in a way that is dishonoring to God's word and dishonoring to God, our first step is that Matthew 18, going to him privately and encouraging him to repent, to turn around, to do what is right. And I don't think that we are to ignore all the nitty gritty details of the lives of other believers just because we're afraid of confrontation or because they might think it's our personal opinion. If we can show from God's word that this is what is expected of them, then we should be willing to encourage and admonish them in the Lord based on his word. Again, his word, not my personal opinions, but God's word. Because we are to separate ourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, not after the tradition which he received of us, as Paul says. The next one is in Second Thessalonians 3.15, and actually it's the same passage here. But in Second, in Second Thessalonians 3, we have this man here who is refusing to work. And I think in, in the passage here, if you notice in verse 10, it said that he, if any would not work, neither should he eat. Again, that was a willful disobedience that was going on. This, this believer was willfully choosing not to do what is right. And then the passage continues, says, Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him. Again, we're to separate from them, that he may be ashamed. Yet, count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. Okay. So as Paul's conclusion here is that we are to separate from an an openly disobedient brother. An openly disobedient brother. The next principle is found in Titus 3 and verse number 10, which says, A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject. Okay, now what is a heretic? The idea here is that the word comes from the concept of being sectarian or forming sects or fac- factious, okay? And so you have within the church a man who gets up and teaches a certain doctrine to divide the church, okay? The case here is that we are to separate ourselves from a heretically divisive brother. And I think the focus, though, on being a heretic is on exalting a false doctrine to the point of trying to divide the church. Okay. So we are to separate from those who are heretically divisive. <clears throat> we also have in second John verse 11, this concept that we are not to support those who do not teach the doctrine of Christ. Okay. So we are to separate from, we are not to support those who do not hold to the doctrine of Christ. What is the doctrine of Christ in second John? Let's look at that real quick. The doctrine of Christ is that Christ is come in the flesh. Okay. So you had, you had a group of false teachers early on who taught that Jesus was really a 
phantom. He wasn't a physical body. He was just an apparition. Okay. And so he wasn't come in the flesh because he wasn't come in the flesh. He didn't raise from the dead in the flesh. Okay. Again, the bodily resurrection is being brought into, into play here as well. And honestly, this is the doctrine of Christ. This is, this goes back to those essentials of fundamentalism that we talked about. <clears throat> the bare minimum understandings of who Christ is if we are going to truly be a believer and follow Christ. Then we also have this idea that we are to separate from false teachers. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputing of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. From such withdraw thyself. So these are false teachers within the church. Now again, you've got to decide what is false teaching. Okay, Is a man a false teacher because he teaches something you dis personally disagree with? Or is he a false teacher because he is denying core cardinal doctrines of the Bible or even the plain revealed truth of the Bible. Now, to bring this into a practical light, let me use probably an easy discussion about one doctrinal issue that has been debated by some, not by most fundamentalists, I'd say, but by some as an illustration. Okay. Now, most would not say that the doctrine of baptism is a fundamental doctrine. When you have your list of the fundamentals, baptism is not on that list. Okay? But baptism by immersion is actually clearly taught in Scripture. I think it elevates baptism by immersion to one of those issues that we would separate over because it is clearly taught in Scripture. The word for baptism is baptizo, which literally means to immerse. Every example in the Bible of baptism was immersion in a body of water. It was not sprinkling. It was not pouring. It was always immersion. Now, so that, that aspect of baptism is clearly taught in Scripture. It is obvious as plain truth. Okay. Now, there are some other doctrines that relate to baptism that are not plain truth. They are doubtful questions. One of those would be whether I need to be baptized in a river or an open body of water versus a baptismal pool. Okay. Now, you might think that this is a stupid issue, and again, probably a lot of them are, but they are debated, and we have all the way back in the Shepherd of Hermes this idea that baptism was to occur in moving waters. Okay. So, it wasn't an issue that, that they weren't talking about that they were, that I've just made up out of thin air. Okay. So, it, that would be a doubtful disputation, in my opinion. That would be a secondary issue. Does that mean I don't have a position? Does that mean I'm not going to teach my position? No, it does not mean either of those things. But it does mean I'm not going to divide with somebody over 
a difference of opinion in that area. Another aspect would be how many times is a person baptized? Um, or how many times are they dunked under the water? Let's use that as an illustration, okay? <clears throat> Most times as a Baptist, we baptized one time. And we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. But we put you under the water one time. Okay. Now, some people take the Great Commission where it tells you to baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. As three different names you're supposed to baptize them in. So you dunk them under the water three different times. Okay. Again, do I have a position on this? And am I going to teach my position on this? Yes, I am. Am I going to take a stand for my position on this? Yes. But am I going to divide with somebody over this issue? No, I am not. And there, there are other issues that can fall into that category. And you're going to have to decide in your own mind where you are going to draw those lines and how you are going to weight certain, certain truths that relate to essential versus non-essential doctrine. As always, grace and peace be with you. And if you have any questions, just message us on our podcast's uh, page and we'll try to get back with you.